Thanks for joining Impact Boom. On this episode... Aboriginal people do not have a monopoly on intimacy with land. All people have that relationship. It really is a matter of finding ways to remind yourself of that role and then living on this continent, start to explore it. Start to think about that and think, why is it that I feel great in the environment 36 hours after I've been in the green environment? Mm. Know why that is. Research that question. Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 395 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today we're speaking with Arabella Douglas. Arabella is a Minyangbul Banjalung woman and a visionary leader here and on the world stage. She leads a TO group, Curry Country, with grace and grit, imagination and intellect. A food activist, lawyer, economist and scholar, Arabella harnesses the power of food to drive social, economic and environmental change. She's a nation builder who understands First Nation sciences are indispensable for any effective response to our combined climate, environmental, social and economic crisis. A lead author of the Curry Country Social Change Bundjalung Nation Food Report 2022, Arabella is currently tackling carbon sequestration, rapid housing solutions and food security. Arabella has just returned from the UN where she advocated on rivers having living being status and legal personhood status, as well as First Nations role in green economics. Arabella advises government, industry and community groups. So Arabella, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. So kicking off, Arabella, let's learn a little bit more about your background and what it was that led to your passion in creating positive social and environmental impact. I think I, like many people, you start in a career, so I was always interested in law and I'm an environmental lawyer by trade. So that was the area of law that I was in. Yeah. At the time that I started, there was nothing known as social impact or social sustainability. Mm. People were just becoming familiar with greening conditions around development and land use. Yeah. I've obviously grown up as an Aboriginal person. I've grown up on my own country and innately been involved in First Nations land matters. So the combination of those things at university and in my professional life saw me play a role in the native title space as director of native title services groups. For example, I was at UNSW leading the 10 point plan when John Howard was prime minister, Mm. I'm that old in response to Marbo and land use. You move forward. I'm involved in the environment and planning space in working for blue chip companies and law firms. And I think it's the merging of those two matters 
that really drew me to reimagining social and environmental impact that also addressed my heart work. I haven't done a lot of work for Aboriginal communities per se because I always offered that work on a voluntary basis because it was heart drawn. Yes. And so I've definitely cultivated my professional skills with very good mentors in my life one who said, get out of crime and get into environment and planning law because it's more technical and it sits mm. in a superior jurisdiction in New South Wales. Yeah. And guided me on using my passion for science. So I've always been interested in science generally. Yeah. And yeah. using it in a technical way. And then as you mature in life, what you're really seeking is a way to combine your hard work with your skills. And so... Curry Country, as a formulated idea, has actually been around for more than 20 years. Because I've been in the native title space, I've been directors of state agencies, my career has been CEO of different organisations, I still work for very large corporates globally in my own consulting. It was really about, they're all great things to do when you want to pretend you're fancy living in a city and having a really flash job. But the really important part to do is to build your own nation where you're from and be responsible for that. And so Curry Country is definitely the legacy piece of my life in that it's using all my skills, all of my talents, all of my focus on the people that call my nation home. I'm not taking a view of trying to change the world by one item and floating above it and trying to get interests nationally and globally. I'm taking an approach of building and rebuilding and remapping my own population for the next generation, so Mm. the next 25 years or until I die, the next two generations, and impacting in that way. And that's what Curry Country is about. So that's why it's a CO-led organisation. It's not about me trying to sell something to the broader market. It's actually me being responsible for leading in my own nation and for my own citizens that call this place home. It's some fantastic work and I can really hear that deep purpose and sort of heart aligned stuff there with the work you're doing at Curry Country, Arabella. So what sort of projects and work are you then involved in Curry Country? Because Curry Country is a cousin consortium model, so there's about 3,000 people in the Curry family. The first part of the work, and this was driven from my mother who's passed away now, 14 years, she basically Mm. said to me, hey, you do really fancy stuff for big companies, why don't you help the family? And that sounds like a simple statement, but when you've got... 3,000 people with complex dynamics going on and you've got to go through archaeological and cultural anthropological material to reorder people and figure out what your nation is, what your language is. It's a large task. But I just approached it like a project management plan. So for the first really five years, it was about bringing the family together, everyone getting to know each other. The next five years was the agenda of cultural consistency. Mm. So that was sharing cultural knowledges across all of those lines and organising people. And then, of course, in that phase, people started telling me that they had small business ideas effectively. So they might have been doing education in primary schools or they might have been doing guided walks in some area. And then I decided to platform and create our own supply chain One part of Curry Country is about 34 small business operators that all do a variety of different things from education in junior school, primary school, high school, executive training for Mm. businesses, 
guided tours, tourism, youth pathfinder stuff. So that's engaging young people with the environment for healing. Looking at an assembly of small businesses, it helped me in my own family work out what skill gaps we had. So then I went on a mission to create lawyers and engineers and doctors and anthropologists and archaeologists Mm. in the family. And so we support their role and their education because we are organised enough to say, go get those skills and bring them back. And then together we do what we do. That's the phase that we're at. People have just a lot of nieces and nephews that are highly qualified Mm. and going into what I would call young professional development. So after university, going out and getting dirty in the big bad world and then bringing those learnings back. And so Curry Country does as a charity, so we have Curry Country Social Change, that is our charitable arm, that does think tank work for not only us, the environmental space generally, we support other Aboriginal organisations in our nation, as well as contribute to the larger state and Commonwealth agenda items and international items. Mm. So the charity does the think tank work. That's effectively what it does. The projects that fall under that, that both impact environment and we actually offer as services are things in the environmental space. So I have a cousin, Rachel Kavanagh, who leads our environmental space, environmental scientist. So she does cultural burning. She is 20 years out of departments of environment etc my baby sister's an archaeologist so she does archaeological work we have historians in the family we've got writers creators and so really for me it's creating an army of people that are soul enriched know their place Mm. in the aboriginal dialogue both here and internationally and are committed to what i would call environmental centering as a living proposition Mm. Mm. understanding that you're not a hierarchy, you're not above the environment, but in fact it's your job to observe it, understand it and work with it. Uh, that's that's lovely to hear. Yeah. So we're, currently we're doing some lobbying stuff for a few groups and grant writing, supporting them on bigger pieces, writing back to government about treaty, for example. I was on a viewing panel thing last night with a film coming out called You Can Go Now by the works of Richard Bell, so an activist who, Mm. as he says, masquerading as an artist. So we contribute a lot to the Indigenous dialogue but really help the smaller voices get heard by agitating for them and writing for them, making sure that their voices are a part of that national dialogue. Mm. Mm. Totally. There's just so much to learn from this Indigenous knowledge and you've worked across a variety of these different projects and with different organisations and people. So where have you seen really strong opportunities for communities to better tackle some of these deep-rooted social and cultural and environmental problems? I think the opportunities for all communities, wherever you are, so it need not matter if you're here, I'm on the Tweed and Byron Coast and part of the Gold Coast, that's my country, but there are opportunities wherever you live and it really is about knowing yourself and your culture first and then engaging with First Nations people wherever you live. And the reason I say that's the best route to take In the UK, people are rewilding and doing large environmental works all around the world. People are seeing because of climate crisis that they have an individual responsibility to assist us in how we manage and live upon the earth. Mm -hmm. And you can only get that by understanding 
what informs your thinking mm. as a person when it comes to the environment. And so when I say to people, when they say, hey, I want to learn about First Nations sciences, I generally take them on a journey of exploring their own culture mm. outside of when they first came to Australia. Because in that story, you'll find intimacy of who you are as a person with the environment. The UK is a very good example of that because the Crown has only been around for about 1,000 years. And so it was in that time prior to that that all clans had a relationship with the environment. It served their food security, it served their healing, it served their rituals, their medicinal aspects, mm. which were connected to how it is that they moved as a society and how they operated as communities. Then the Crown started because they believed that God himself came down and said, tip, you're it, you're amazing. And then we have what legally is known as the divide of kings, which means that the king's priority sits above every other human being. Mm. And they started taxing plants. So you get aspro or aspirin in your cupboard now, panadol, that comes from willow wood is a tree that was taxed originally and then synthetically produced. And now we buy it in coals or wherever you buy it. That is a relationship of people that used to have willow wood boil it a little bit, sip it when you're unwell. And that was taxed and then taken from people's lands. And then those other elements, resources, were also taken and taxed from people's lands. And so I think what's interesting in Australia is people know that it was a convict settlement and a colony, but what they don't realise and they don't think about is how were people made poor? Why were they stealing bread in London? And they were because when you go back on that journey, that they had a similar experience to First Nations people here, which was they are moved off land for resource exploitation. Their lands and their medicines and their food systems are taxed and exploited. And yep. you get the stories of Robin Hood, et cetera, and sheriffs, and you start to understand those processes. But in our own dialogue in Australia, we don't question how people were criminalised, how they were made criminals and poor. And that is a process of being shifted from your intimacy of land, which land gives you everything that you need, the environment can give you life. Its only purpose is to give human beings life. It's there to serve us, to feed us, to nurture us, to inspire us. But these other concepts that we've created upon Earth are simply manufactured concepts. And First Nations people are more intimately connected with that history because we've only had that interruption for 230 years, yeah. where people in Europe have had their crown interrupting them for a thousand years. Mm. And so often they don't remember who their societies were before that exploitation. Yes, yeah. When people say, how can people tackle social or cultural environmental problems better? The first is to know your history. Look beyond a thousand years at where your family roots were from. Yep. Explore a little bit of that history on Google Scholar or something and think to yourself, all right, I can see that we had a clan or a community that had similar rituals, relationships to land, different types of system before you move into crown interruption mm. and industrialization of the world. Yeah, yeah. So Aboriginal people do not have a monopoly on intimacy with land. All people have that relationship. It really is a matter 
of finding ways to remind yourself of that role and then living on this continent, start to explore it. Start to think about that and think, why is it that I feel great 36 hours after I've been in the green environment? Mm. Know why that is. Research that question. If you do that, you then understand what Indigenous sciences or Indigenous standpoint theory, it's actually called, what Indigenous sciences can offer you and how you might see both the problems of the world and your role in those problems. How do you have a role in it? Your job as non-Indigenous Australians, I'm not interested in them saying, hey, let me know everything about First Nations people in Australia. No, your role is to know everything about you when your culture had that intimacy. Bring that to a conversation and a table with me and together we will tackle problems from the same lens. Mm, Yeah, such a great perspective. And, I mean, this world, this continent that we are living in now has just been so hugely disruptive for Indigenous Australians, Arabella. And we know about the horrendous stats and disadvantage when it comes to health and education and incarceration in so many communities nationwide. So just riffing off that, what do you believe urgently needs to happen in Australia to help bridge this gap? Because we're at a very crucial point in time with all this conversation around the voice as well. A couple of things. One is that Indigenous people will never abandon land. So if you come from a culture that you think, I've used the land as much as I can, now I'm moving on, and there's lots of examples of that where you'll see place mining towns turn to nothing. People who remain will be First Nations people. They don't abandon their land. In terms of the societal gaps, it really is about what is the role that the power is playing in that conversation or in that dynamic. Mm. I'm sure most Indigenous people reject the notion that you need to feel empathetic or sorry for Aboriginal people. What you need to do is challenge the power that you hold. I think we saw a very good example with Stan Grant this week or last week with the ABC, a very big institution. They would be considered progressive by a lot of people's definitions. Yet he himself was isolated inside that institution. That's not a problem that Stan has. It's everyone else who makes up the institutional thinking, which means everybody. Yes. It's like it comes down to what do you do? How do you understand? Racism is not an Aboriginal problem. Racism is a structural concept created by those in power to serve an agenda of maintaining power and oppressing a group. That's the purpose of racism. It has no other purpose. But what's happened over time is people confuse those behaviour with cultural indicators. If I was to say, tell me the cultural characteristics of white culture, most white people have challenges saying that without it being juxtaposed to black narratives. So people Mm. might say, oh, we're scholars, we're engineers, we're agriculturists, we're machinists, we're industrialised people. That's our cultural narrative. But when you break that down and you look at how that cultural norm has been created, underneath that is a myriad of diversity where all those things have been taken from or exploited and used. And even the work of, for example, the word caucus, that's a First Nations word taken from the Americas, like Mm. tomato, tobacco, potato. The word caucus and the element of caucus is a First Nations concept. Yet if you were to 
be an alien and come down today, you'd believe that caucus is a European word yes. or yeah. an institutionalised word that talks about democracy. Yes. But yeah. it's actually not that. It's actually democracy taken from First Nations behaviour and then transited over on a boat. Mm-hmm. If you look at, for example, the Blue Poles piece of art that was contentious in Australia because Gough Whitlam purchased it and it was the most expensive piece of art I think the gallery had taken. Drip painting, that style, is also a taken and stolen art form from First Nations people. Yeah, yeah. People don't know that. And so when you're looking at what are the challenges, the challenges are to look at the evidence of social issues and think what is my role how am i analyzing both the problem and what do i need to do about saying that and sometimes it means just speaking up and saying things like i just said sometimes people talk about a number of theories which have been maslow's theory for example maslow stole that idea from blackfoot people in the americas and spent time with first nations people the element of a maslow hierarchy actually failed to add one extra step, which is about the spiritual connection. Mm. And because he couldn't manage that thinking in his brain at the time, he left that out in his hierarchy. Now, you can't go anywhere in the Western world without people understanding what the Maslow hierarchy is about. Mm. They know what it means. Mm. They often do policy designed on it. They motivate their teams based on it. But in fact, If you look at Google Scholar and you have a look at the origins of that, you'll see that he spent time with First Nations people and adopted what their hierarchy of being was. But the failure on his hierarchy is it didn't have the special intimacy of environmental connection Mm. because Mm. he couldn't grapple with that. That's what First Nations people were trying to say to him. We're trying to say, hey, all these things work if you have an intimacy with the environment. Yep. You have to have that. So even if non-Indigenous people, just with their own awareness, decided to challenge some concepts and started saying, hey, that's actually a First Nations notion. If I just keep saying that in all the spaces that I'm in and getting more familiar with what has been adopted or plagiarised or whatever language you want to use, that goes a long way to bridging the gap because it means that First Nations people don't have to argue for their excellence and their contribution and their being. So that's a very positive, like if I was to talk about the perfect non-Indigenous ally, they would be a person not obsessed with my culture but challenging very much of what is taken for granted. That's the active person I want to see. They're... Activism does not need to be benevolent towards me. Their activism needs to challenge the very notion of how that culture is operating and challenge power and how it's being dispersed, abused, used and constructed. That's the healthy non-Indigenous position for me. Yeah, that's a fantastic insight, Arabella. And there's a few points that come to mind there. Just in a podcast last week, we spoke about purpose-led entrepreneurs being very unreasonable and unreasonable in that healthy way that they do challenge those norms, that they do really push those things. And you've just brought up this area of a a deep understanding of the problem, a deep understanding of the root causes of that and history and how that sort of comes to play as well. And I think they're also very important for these purpose-led entrepreneurs and people like yourself who have gone through that process of setting up and helping really establish Curry Country as it is now as an organization. So I'm keen to hear 
basically what advice you'd be giving to other purpose-led or impact-led entrepreneurs who are working hard to establish or grow their enterprises? I've thought about this because I've had the questions before and I work in a space of behavioural economics called cross-cultural experimental economics and it's out of and the Asian kind of narrative around how economics works through cultural behaviour. One of the things that's very interesting to me is that if you're a business and you wanted to set up in Singapore or in China or something like that, you would be asked by the government to undertake a very serious cultural awareness component for Mm. your CEOs and executive team. They expect that because what they want you to understand is the tempo and the rhythm of their cultural dynamics Yes. so that you don't come in as a foreigner and just try to insert yourself, but you understand that there's a rhythm of behaviour. Even France has it. They actually make you do, you know, courses on the history of France Mm. so that you really understand it and you really understand how they treat their colonies still, what that dynamic's about. What's interesting to me in Australia is that, People are operating businesses in Australia on Aboriginal land, knowing very well of a history and don't know how to relate to that, don't know how to take the journey of how is it that I'm service to the culture that I actually want to see grow. Yes. Yeah. I think if I was to say a purpose-led entrepreneur is a person who's ignited by being dynamic and really being impactful globally, I would encourage people who consider themselves to be entrepreneurs in purpose-led or social impact to think genuinely about devising what is their relationship to a First Nations continent that they operate in, what is their position to it, how do they position themselves, and how do you grow a future together? I don't want the listeners to be confused at all. I know that my salvation and my liberation is wrapped up in educating everybody that lives on my nation. But non-Indigenous people need to appreciate that their liberation, their freedom, their continuation as a species, as a human species, is reliant on First Nations knowledges. Yeah. Because the knowledge system that we all work under at the moment, which is we take what we need, we have no consideration for any of those things and technology will save us in the end to open up another planet, is not it. But if you're asking the advice from a culture that's been sustainable for 60,000 versus a king that's imploded 1,000 years down the track and he can't even get the support of Australia to remain their king, people aren't that interested, then even if we just contrast those two systems, there's something on the ledger for the group that's been around for 60,000 years. They know something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And we didn't eat ourselves. We didn't hurt ourselves in the 60,000 years. Mm. And we had incredible diplomatic things go on. And there's a wonderful book. I know you're going to ask me what I'd recommend and I'll write an email so you can put it up next to my books I would recommend. But Aboriginal culture is so sophisticated and was so necessary to keep human beings alive because of the small and the numbers and the clans and the makeups. So even in disagreement, even with rupture, it wasn't to death. And even when there was a death, there was a process of coronial inquiry, which is well-researched, where Aboriginal people would get an independent person to observe the body for a period of time to determine whether the death was deliberate, natural, or what was the cause of death. Because those who were scientists would know that you can observe a body and work out what killed the body by observation. 
the fact that's built into our culture and then bodies are buried with reverence and we've got examples in Lismore where I live around here where there were first world conflicts we wrapped and treated non-indigenous people bodies like heroes wrapped them as you would a warrior where when non-indigenous people buried our bodies they normally decapitated us mm. and left us on a pile and threw us over a cliff both those cultures and this is not to make people feel bad about who they are but you're looking to ways to live a purpose-led life reverence in death reverence for your enemy reverence for mistake is a part of living like a human yeah. there's something deep about that so i would ask purpose-led entrepreneurs who are on this continent to get serious about making that relationship genuine and be bold enough to lead because i can lead so much but not indigenous people need leaders in that space as well yeah absolutely let's talk about a few or a couple of inspiring projects or initiatives then that you've come across that you see really strong leadership in? Oh, gosh. There's actually quite a lot around at the moment. And I think that's sad that people don't get those things amplified. But definitely inspiring project. There's a couple that I think are amazing, and that is what you're seeing in cultural fire burning mm. and how that as an effort, like a concerted effort for land management and inclusive land management has taken off since the last bushfire catastrophe. Yep. Yep. The interest in that and how people are interested in engaging with that, so I just mean people generally, is really inspiring to me. Because if you think about it, it's a land management movement that's tactile and available. Yes. And I think the interest shows that we will grow a generation of people who will be more active as environmental stewards. Yes, yep. So I think when I look at cultural fire burning and how that's used, that's inspiring to me. Mm. The other inspiring initiatives which I'm super keen on at the moment and really think that they're doing amazing stuff is in the carbon crediting market. Obviously, if people don't know, Australian government services generally provide the legal services for Papua New Guinea, so it's our infrastructure that they rely upon. Australia has a very active role over there. You can offset carbon in the Amazon or PNG, but it has no effect here. So if we really want people to be better corporate entities and better green people, the connection between First Nations activities to offset carbon and to be actually working and driving emissions, so mm. emission offset in Australia, is really exciting and how I see that. Yes. Not enough people are in tune with that. But what you will see is that big business, if that's done well, their offsetting will start looking like rapid river repair in the back of New South Wales or in the back of Queensland or along the coast of Queensland. So you're driving that offset to direct change and community being involved in that is the nirvana that I see. Mm. And I've seen some of that happen up in the Northern Territory where and in WA where mining have to do offset a lot and they've started to go, oh, okay, let's actually offset and regenerate our own lands that we're exploiting. That's really positive to me. And I think, again, if you're a leader in the entrepreneurial space, wanting to be purpose-led, looking for opportunities to act 
in an uber strong fashion to direct environmental regeneration on this continent should be on your goal list for the next rapid five, 10 years. I think that's exciting. I'm seeing regeneration programs of the environment around the marine corridors. I'm seeing more greening of rivers, more river work stuff. People actually being conscious and going, what did Aboriginal people say about this river? And if, if the history, like Ballina means full belly, so yeah. Aboriginal people have known forever that river was going to swell. Now people are being mindful and saying, what do Aboriginal people say about this or the history of this area? Let me make a decision about my business or my home mm. or where I want to live based on that. That's a really interesting and inspiring way that I'm seeing people consider how they live here. That tells me that they're open to accepting that Aboriginal people can offer something and also that the sciences and the history and the art, which informs those stories and holds stories of continental shifts and changes, people are happy to accept in their fullness for being legitimate. Yeah, yep. That is quite remarkable in my lifetime to see that shift, Mm. I've got to say. Yeah, absolutely, Arabella. Some great points there. To finish off then, I'm interested to hear what books or resources you'd recommend to our listeners. If you don't know who Professor Gary Foley is, I totally recommend you have a look at his own website called Guru Web. He's an amazing thinker, activist and academic, not so much in the environmental space, but questions like treaty and the referendum and what are the debates. He has great material. He's a professor out of Melbourne. He does great work. I definitely think Another Day in the Colony by Chelsea Bond. I'm reading that at the moment. If you really want to know about First Nations people all through Oceania and the connections with the world when, I don't know if people know if your listeners knew, but when you get terms like Micronesia, Melanesia, Indonesia, those are race categories. Mm. Historically, they are cut up areas of the world based on colour definitions of skin. So First Nations people globally prefer Oceania because we actually belong to the sea, not to the land. And that carving up was done through exploitation and colonial movement. So I recommend a book called Pacifica Black by a guy called Quinto Swan, a wonderful academic out of the US. Mark Bittman's book called Animal, Vegetable and Junk, a history of food from sustainable to suicidal. And for those that are interested in First Nations thinking or race and class, if you have never read anything like that before, I have an arts degree as well, so I have a double major in theology and Aboriginal studies. So if you're interested in race and class, I recommend Angela Davis' book, Women, Race and Class, as a reader. So if you're journeying into that, I think I said Chelsea Bond's book as well, which I think is great. The Great Estate is fantastic. And the other book I would recommend is The Secret Life of Trees, Mm -hmm. which is fascinating. You've probably read that before, but I totally recommend that book to understand how the ecosystem works in our favour to make us thrive and it's got no other purpose than our thriving and how that intimacy is what we need to seek in all aspects of both seeking information, working out problems in life and really allowing your body to respond to the environment in a way that helps lead you. Mm. There's a fantastic list of books there, Arabella. So thanks so much for those. We will put links through to all of those in your article. So if you're listening and you want to jump onto Arabella's article, you'll find a list and can click all through to those. But Arabella, 
It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. There's been so many great insights and just a generous sharing of your knowledge and experience. So thank you so much. We'll look forward to an ongoing collaboration and tracking your journey as you continue on yours. So thanks again. So much i appreciate it and i wish everybody the absolute best for taking on the world and knowing that you belong to it thanks for listening to impact boom you'll find links to the initiatives people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org please leave your comments below and remember we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website facebook page and twitter Thank you.